a psalm to the choir master. According to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan, and when I meditate, my spirit faints. Salah. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Salah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Salah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's just pray again one more time. Lord, I pray that what we need this morning you would give us. You are the one who meets all of our needs and leads us by the hand. And so I pray that you would meet our needs today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was uh, a pastor in London, England in the mid-1900s. One Sunday, during the Nazi blitzkrieg of bombing of London in World War II, while he was praying the pastoral prayer during a church service like this, a Nazi bomb landed close enough to the church building that the whole building shook and plaster dust started falling from the ceiling. There was a pause. People hit the deck. And after a few minutes, everybody stood up and brushed themselves off. And without even mentioning it, Lloyd-Jones continued to pray. And then he proceeded to to preach the regular Sunday morning sermon. And so that's the context that he, that uh, I wanted to set up when to, in order to ask this question regarding the genuineness of our faith. So Lloyd-Jones asks this question. He says, the acid test of our profession, that is of faith in Jesus Christ, is this. What do you feel like when you're sitting in an air raid shelter and you can hear the bombs dropping round about you? Now, of course, he was being very literal. That's the test, he says. How do you feel when you're face-to-face with the ultimate, with the end? So we don't have bombs dropping around us. But we sit in 
We sit in doctor's offices and we wait for diagnoses. We sit in courtrooms and we wait for rulings or decisions. We look at bills and statements and sometimes we regret poor financial decisions and wonder how we can make it to the next paycheck. Sometimes we sit in lonely houses, sometimes with other people in them, and wonder how we're going to make it to the next Sunday where we can be with some people that we know love us. Or maybe we doubt or question whether they really do. But in the end, the acid test of our profession of faith is where do we turn in those times? What do we hold on to? So, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, in there the Bible tells us to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith, to test yourselves. And that's not really a verse uh, given to introduce doubt where there need not be doubt, but frankly, sometimes maybe there ought to be some doubt. So what do you feel like when you're sitting in an air raid shelter and you can hear the bombs dropping round and about you? Where do you turn? And just to reiterate this, if things are going pretty good for you right now and your family, and I suspect that for many of us they are, if things are going pretty good for you right now, you still need to be working, working hard to strengthening this foundation. You need to be working hard to instill this foundation in our children because things are not always going to be good in one way or another. And so where do we turn? What shall we do? Well, simply put, we are to remember God in our distress. We are to raise our prayers to Him, even in lament. We are to praise God in the dark. That's exactly what Asaph does here in Psalm 77. First, I want to give you just a very little bit of background. According to this introduction there, right before verse 1, Psalm 77 is written to the choir master, according to the Jedithon, a uh, psalm of Asaph. So it was written to be sung by a choir or the congregation, written to the choir master to be sung in church. Uh, we don't know what Jedithon means. We don't know what that word means. It's probably some sort of musical notation. And it was written, it says there, by a man by the name of Asaph. And frankly, there's no consensus as to which Asaph wrote this. Uh, different scholars think different ones. There were several in the Bible. So we don't know which one specifically wrote it or what time period in Old Testament history it was written. And I think that in this case that's actually helpful because it helps us to focus on the words of the text, on the psalm itself, and not the surrounding circumstances. And so we can read the hymn lyrics here without looking out the window at the bombs dropping, right? And so while we don't really know anything about this Asaph, except that he was clearly a songwriter, probably some sort of worship leader in the congregation of Israel, but we can tell from this psalm, and, and by the way, this is a community lament. He's, he's praying here on behalf of the people. In fact, we could say, uh, we could say that Asaph feels about his people, the people of Israel, the people that he loves and cares for, that he feels the same way about them that the Apostle Paul felt when he wrote of his own heartache for the people, when, when he said, there is the daily pressure on me, on my anxiety for all of the churches. And so the emphasis in Psalm 77 
is on the condition of, of God's people as a body. But that doesn't make it any less personal. In fact, anyone who sings this psalm, who reads this hymn, who reads these words, each, each member of the choir, each member of the congregation that reads through this, we, we sing it, we read it as a member of the whole, as a member of the church or the, the choir, as it were. Each Christian who reads this psalm and prays these words, we do so as a member of Christ's church. And we must acknowledge that our spiritual well-being, my spiritual well-being, and your spiritual well-being is tied to the well-being of the rest of the people here. Right? Because we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. And by the way, that's a command for the church. Romans chapter 15 puts it like this. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. He's talking to the church at Rome. He's talking to us. Love, let love be genuine and abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Understanding Psalm 77 is going to help us to better be able to fulfill these commands. And so Martin Luther said of this psalm, he says, this psalm sets forth to us God and the ways of God. That is, how He works and what He does in His church and in the saints. A generation or so later, John Calvin, in writing of Psalm 77, he said, whoever was the penman of this psalm, the Holy Spirit seems by his mouth to have dictated a common form of prayer for the church in her afflictions, that even under the most cruel persecutions, the faithful might not fail to address their prayers to heaven. Even under the most cruel persecutions, the faithful, the church, might not fail to address their prayers to heaven. This psalm is given to us so that in our troubles we would remember to turn to God. That's exactly what Asaph does, even from the outset. And even though it's entirely good and right to pray formally, so when we gather together and I pray a, a pastoral prayer, that's, that's us praying formally together. But this is not a formal prayer. This is a prayer prayed really in our bedroom with the door closed on our knees beside the bed with tears running down our face. That's how Asaph wrote it. And yet, it's a prayer for the choir master to be sung in the congregation. Spurgeon put it like this. He said, Asaph was a man of exercised mind and often touched the minor key. He was thoughtful, contemplative, believing, but withal there is a touch of sadness about him. And this imparted a, a tonic flavor to his songs. To follow him with understanding, it is needful to have done business on the great waters and weathered many an Atlantic gale. You will understand this psalm if you've ever been through any storms, any of the storms of life. 
And right at the outset, right at the very beginning, he sets the example of remembering God in the midst of the storm. And so this is where he starts with remembering God. Look again at verses 1 through 3. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. This is clearly a prayer born in grief and sadness. But I'll tell you, even as we just begin to look at this, the the mood is going to change. His mood is going to brighten as we walk through the psalm. Growing up in, uh, in the weird Christian subculture of the 70s and 80s, it was common to walk into to any home of any Christian grandmother, in particular, and see a magnet on her fridge that said, prayer changes things, right? That was fairly common. We don't see it as much anymore, although sometimes, but I know both of my grandmothers had them. But it's kind of a generic statement, right? Prayer changes things. What things? It would have been better and maybe more specific to say prayer changes the one who prays. Prayer changes the one who prays. Now this should be, should be evident, that statement that prayer changes us, it should be evident as, as we look at the whole of this psalm. But notice that, that at the end of the psalm, if you just kind of look at those words at the end, the last few verses, there's no... There's no resolution to whatever this distress is that Asaph finds himself in. There's no resolution. It says that God has in the past led them through the waters, but he doesn't give Asaph a resolution. There's only a changed attitude on Asaph's part. There's a changed heart there. You you can get a sense... Sort of, at the, uh, sort of behind the scenes, behind this whole prayer that he's, by the time he gets to the end, he's wiping away his tears. He's feeling more confident even in the midst of his circumstances. But his confidence is not in himself. He isn't saying, now I have a plan. His confidence is in the God who has delivered his people. And right here at the beginning is the seed for that confidence. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. He didn't run to man. He didn't run to his friends. He didn't cry out to his family. He wasn't constantly complaining to them about the bad things happening to them. He didn't complain to his boss. He didn't run to a lawyer and lash out. He cried aloud to God. And he repeats himself, I cried aloud to God, aloud to God. He prayed and prayed. He prayed earnestly and fervently. I cried aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Of course, the Bible commands us to pray without ceasing, over and over, to be in a a constant state of prayer. And Jesus addressed this idea himself of being in this this constantly praying and praying for something when he told this parable in in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Just listen to this parable. Luke narrating this and says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, 
though I neither feared God, fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what this unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is how Asaph prayed. Look at the confidence that he has at the end of verse 1. It says, I cried aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Right in the very first verse. I cried out to God, and I cried out to God, and I cried out to God, and he will hear me. Some versions put it in the past tense. They will say, he has heard me. But really, the effect is the same. It's essentially saying the same thing. Asaph has faith that God has and will continue to hear his prayers. God has heard me. God will continue to hear me. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to cry aloud to God, aloud to God. And that's the point. His confidence is in the Lord. He cries aloud to God because he knows that God will hear him. Sometimes we've called this, some at least have called this a, a foxhole prayer. So to use the war uh, analogy again, this is the prayer of the soldier in the foxhole. So bombs are dropping all around him. Bullets are flying overhead. They're unrelenting. They're day and night. Verse 2 even says that it, this is day and night he's crying aloud. In fact, Asaph has trouble all day long. And then he, spent, he has spent the day constantly seeking God's assistance, God's intervention. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. He's seeking relief even while he's in the thick of it, even while he's in the thick of, of work or whatever it was that took up his day when he's there in the foxhole. And then at night, he stretches out his arms to God in prayer. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. He's lifting up his hands. His distress is great. He's, he's inconsolable. My soul refuses to be comforted. And in fact, in verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. He's moaning and groaning in his prayers. His distress and his, his agitation, it wasn't just written on his face. He wasn't just, I think he's upset. He looks upset. He sounded upset. He was probably sobbing. He was crying loudly out to the God that he was remembering. Now, there are two ways in which remembering God can bring this kind of grieving, this kind of broken heart. And the first is that when the remembering is weighed down with a sense of guilt, sense of fear that God is angry with you. In other words, when the, when the grief of our circumstances drives us to cry out to God, but, but we don't, because, because when we do or when we think of these things, we are remembering that we ought, to, we ought to also confess some sin. We ought to also go to someone that we've offended. We also ought to pray and, and repent of our sins. And this sense of guilt keeps us from repenting and, and keeps us from confessing our sin. And it ends up grieving us even more. Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that that had been the case for Esau back in Genesis. 
And so Hebrews 12, verses 15 to 17 says this. The preacher of Hebrews says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. His guilt, and he was guilty, not just feeling guilty, he was guilty. His guilt brought him grief, and he could not repent. And then the second way in which remembering God can bring this kind of grieving that we see in Psalm 77, it's when we remember how he, how he used to deliver us from troubles, yet now he seems to have forgotten us. He seems to be silent. When God seems distant, but when God seems silent, we often feel this kind of grief. Well, in the first case, like is in Esau, Comfort can only be found in repentance. So Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. But here in Psalm 77, it's the second option that's troubling Asaph. Where are you, God? Why can't I hear you, God? I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm listening to Christian radio stations. I have Christian friends. I'm, I'm praying and praying, but I'm hearing nothing from you. Where are you, God? Okay, look at verse 3 again. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. This is poetic repetition, remembering God and meditating. He's saying the same thing twice. He's, he's remembering God and he's meditating. He's thinking through and focusing on, on God and as he has revealed himself to us in his word. And it seems to be only making matters worse. He's, is that even possible? He's moaning and fainting, fainting. Remembering God seems to be making matters worse. Well, we need to understand that there are times in life, in the life of every believer, of every Christian, when God and His ways, they almost become completely unintelligible to us. The Bible will put it like this, His ways are not our ways. Because He was looking for an answer in what He would do. And God seemed to be silent. His ways are not our ways. This is the, kind of the unexpected outcome here of this initial remembering of God in these first three verses. His grief actually seems to escalate. So that by the time he gets here to verse 3, he's, he's moaning and fainting. And just to put this in our modern terms, because that, that sounds like sort of really emotional, and it is, we would talk about depression right here. We would give a clinical diagnosis. What he's talking about here is what we would recognize as not able to get out of, the bed, not able to get out of bed depression. He's moaning and fainting. But stay with me here because we can't forget this context. He's still praying. In fact, he's really only just begun praying. Again, Calvin on this point says, However much we may experience of fretting, sorrow, and disquietude, we must persevere in calling upon God even in the midst of these impediments. 
But when he gets to verse 3, he doesn't say, in Jesus' name, amen. He keeps going. He keeps praying and praying. He cried aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. And then it says, Selah. Do you see that there? S-E-L-A-H. Hebrew word, Selah. It's one of those words in the Psalms. In fact, this is the most common, I think, in the Psalms. We don't know what it means. It just means Selah. It seems to be some kind of musical notation. Zach, my son, thinks it means extended guitar solo. I don't think that's right. (laughs) But I like what Spurgeon said about this. So Spurgeon was a man who was well acquainted with grief. He said, he thinks it means this. Let the song go softly. This is no merry dance for the swift feet of the daughters of music. Pause ye a while and let sorrow take breath between her sighs. He's moaning and fainting. And he just takes a breath. Selah. Well, now we've remembered God. We've taken a deep breath, even in this severe depression. And Asaph then goes for something more. He doesn't stop here. He now remembers better days. He remembers better days. Pick it up in verse 4. He says, You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Again, he's still praying. But he's also unable to sleep. And he has no words. Whatever is tormenting him, whatever is troubling him is very serious. He's crying out to God, yet he's unable to get out of bed. He's unable to sleep. He's unable to articulate his prayers. And so the, really, this must simply be his thoughts. We know that 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9 tells us, The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. So we even when we have no words, we can actually continue to cry out to God. Do you understand that? Even when we don't know what to say, even when we have nothing to say, we can still continue to cry out to God, confident that He hears, that He knows, and that He understands. Again, even when we don't know what to say. And and let me tell you something, that for us as Christians... For those who live after Pentecost, after the time of Acts chapter 2, after God poured out His Spirit, who indwells every Christian, as a, Ephesians 1 tells us, as a guarantee of our salvation, until we acquire possession of it, until we, until we reach heaven, until we are glorified, we can have even more confidence than this. Because God has assured us, as Romans chapter 8 verse 26 says, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God the Spirit 
prays for us. Think about that for a moment. The Holy Spirit is no less God. He is God. He's not the Father. He's not the Son. But He is God. He is the Spirit. And He is praying for us. He's one member of the, God, of the Godhead. He is a part of the Trinity. And He is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. God hears our prayers. Even our unspoken prayers. Even the ones that we don't even t- tell ourselves. Say nothing about the people around us. Even the ones we can't bring to utter. He hears our prayers. Now at this point in his prayer here, we should see, just by the, just by the very nature of these questions that he asks in verses 7, 8, and 9, we should see that he's, he's bringing to mind God's word. That's actually what he says in verses 5 and 6. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. He's probably talking about the other psalms, some of which he wrote. Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search of God's word that he has hidden in his heart. And we read those questions there in verses 7, 8, and 9. How, how do we, do you know that you can do this? You can make this kind of diligent search. Do you know how? Do you know how we are able to bring God's word to mind in these stressful circumstances? Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up, or I have it memorized in probably King James, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The ESV says, I have stored up your word in my heart, stockpiled it in my heart that I might not sin against you. We must know God's word. We must store it up in our hearts. We must know it inside and out. This is the importance here of of reading, of meditating on, of, of memorizing, listening to, discussing, studying God's word for just such a time as this. This isn't just a hobby, right? We're not doing this just for a hobby. We don't read our Bibles just because we think we ought to. We do it for this and for just a, such a time as this. As a matter of fact, Psalm 119, the longest of the Psalms, it, it's all about God's Word. It's all about the value of God's Word for God's people. I want to read just a couple of sections of Psalm 119. So, for example, verses 57 to 64. The Lord is my, por- my portion. I promise to keep your words I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Another one. Beginning in verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. 
They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Or verse 169. Let, me cry, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Here's the thing. We often remember better days, as he's doing here. He's remembering the better days of God's people. We often remember better days through rose-colored history books, through sentimental memories. But Asaph isn't looking back to Leave it to Beaver or Andy Griffith. He's looking back to God's Word. He's looking back to how God has worked with his people. He's going back to what God has done. And he's bringing these works of God under his review. He's comparing those times with how he sees God working even then during his life. He's remembering the days when Israel enjoyed God's blessing. And he's singing the the praise songs of the Psalms. He's meditating on the scriptures. And as he does, he asks Six questions that get to the heart of the nature and the character of God. And and I don't know if you noticed this or not, but he doesn't answer the questions. He just asks six questions, verses 7, 8, and 9, that get to the, the character and nature of God. But I'm going to give you the answers because God gives us the answers. Okay? I'm going to read the questions and give you the answers. Beginning in verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever? In other words, has he rejected us? No. God is faithful to his promises. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 31 to 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So the middle of verse 7, the second question. And never again be favorable? Yeah, he will show favor again to his people. Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Verse 8, next question, Has his steadfast love forever ceased? No. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 1 through 3, At that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Next question. Are his promises at an end for all time? Absolutely not. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise. 
which he spoke to Moses, his servant. Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Still no. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14, 15, and 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, God says, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And then finally, at the end of verse 9, he asks another question. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Nope. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. In the depths of despair and lament, we cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he hears us. We remember God and his promises. We remember his steadfast love and his loving kindness. And don't forget, Silah. And then we remember God's right hand. Verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You're the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Silah. This is really where the storm in his soul begins to break. He sets his mind to focus on God's mighty power. Whenever the Bible poetically talks about God's right arm or mighty right hand, he's talking about God's power. And he grounds his prayers right there. In this prayer for deliverance, remember, he, this is an entire prayer, God save me, a prayer for deliverance. In this prayer for deliverance, he makes up his mind to remember God's history with his people and also God's prophecies. This is where we can find comfort. So the history recorded in the Bible tells us what God has done, what God has said, and the prophecy tells us what God is going to do. Sometimes we see, often, we see the prophecy fulfilled, particularly when it comes to Christ, right? We can see the prophecies in the Old Testament and the prophecies fulfilled. And some we are still waiting to be fulfilled. Too many people, I think, are afraid of or intimidated by the book of Revelation, the second half of the book of Daniel, but, but all of God's word was given, and these specifically were given to the church as a promise and a comfort to remember what God will do, not, not for fear of the end times, but for comfort. Look at verse 13. He says, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Our, our God is holy. Uh, Isaiah 55, verse 8 
I referenced this earlier, but this is the passage. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God is holy. God is far above us. He is completely other, and His plans are perfect. In fact, in fact, when His people were being taken captive, when they were being hauled off into captivity, He, he said some words that, well, frankly, we've twisted them by, by putting them on greeting cards and coffee mugs. And they must have sounded absolutely crazy to the Jews. But when they, were, when they were being hauled off into captivity, he said, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And they're being hauled off into captivity. What God is great like our God? What God has worked wonders like our God? What God has made known His might among the people like our God? What God has redeemed His people, verse 15, like our God? What God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons? And because you're sons, what God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father? so that we're no longer a, sl a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What God has done that? Our God. Our God has done that. Selah. This brings us to the, the fourth and the final aspect of remembering God in this prayer. That's the remembering of God's powerful deliverance. Pick it up in verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And it is... This is redemption... This is deliverance, God's mighty power. It is this that we cling to. It is His hand that we hold. This is God's powerful deliverance, powerful redemption. Again, verse 15, you with your outstretched arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Then in the rest of this chapter, Asaph, what he's doing here is he is poetically remembering the, the crossing of the Red Sea by the people of Israel. That's what this is about. Uh, when we read these verses, we can almost feel the thunder. You can almost hear the ocean crashing, the sea parting and, and crashing, being held back and then crashing upon the Egyptians. And this morning, when we remember God's powerful deliverance, this is the God that we remember. We remember the deliverance, not just of the ancient people of Israel, from their slavery in Egypt. But we remember the God who, through Jesus Christ, has delivered us from our slavery to sin. So much more powerful than an ancient Egyptian army. 
at the table, when we come to the table, we proclaim Jesus' death. We proclaim His shed blood and His broken body. See, on the cross, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What God is like our God? No God is like our God. This is the God that we worship. The God who sent Christ that we might have life, that we might have an answer to our prayers, that we might have deliverance, that He might save us. And so in the Lord's Supper, we remember God's powerful deliverance through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and in proclaiming this, proclaiming His death until He comes, this gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. What God has done this And he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Think of this wonder. That God would leave, send his son to leave heaven. Not account equality with God something to be grasped, but would humble himself to come to lead his people like a flock by the hand out of our death, out of our sin, into his promised land. This is the God that we cling to. This is the God that we cry aloud to. Pray with me. I cried aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Lord, we trust that. We know that. We have seen it throughout history, throughout the scriptures, that you have heard our prayers, that you know our thoughts and our hearts, the intentions of man. We know, Lord, that you hear our prayers. We know that you are not slow as some would count slowness, but that you are not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We know that you have desired for us to come to you in faith. And you have made a way for that to happen through Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that in our distress, we would cry aloud to you with the same kind of confidence that Asaph does. Lord, I pray that in our good times, we would be building up, we would be hiding your word, storing it up in our hearts. We would be teaching our children, our grandchildren, that we might not sin against you, but might turn to you in faith, knowing that you will hear us. And so God, I pray that you would transform us, transform our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.